tonight and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Iron Golf Mind podcasts. And today I'm speaking with Todd Woodbridge. Todd is a highly credentialed tennis player. He's won 22 Grand Slams, 16 of them in doubles and six of them in mixed doubles. He was also a gold medalist at the 96 Atlanta Olympics in doubles and a silver medalist in 2000. He's a member of the Australian Hall of Fame for Tennis and the International Hall of Fame. Todd, thanks for your time. Pleasure. Nice to be with It really intrigues me that athletes particularly who go through this you know, great period of competition and all the rest of it and then come to the end of it. And a lot of time it's, it's only then that they tend to reflect back on um, their achievements and perhaps even why they were good, particularly with you having been in you know, coaching, mentoring, leadership roles. But let's go back. Why tennis? Oh, gosh, that's going a long way back. Tennis for me was a part of my childhood because um, tennis was played by my mum. She played competition tennis three days a week, Tuesday, Thursdays and Saturdays, and I spent um, all that time before school. I was the third and youngest by a long way, you know, being at tennis clubs and hanging on the fence trying to get on the court and have a hit. And I always had a a really good hand-eye coordination from a really young age. Um, I've got photos of me at the age of about two and a half holding a racket and just walking around with a racket. Mm. So there was a connection between, I think, the hand-eye that really drew me towards tennis and the fact that my mum played so much. Mm. So from um, the age of four, I started coaching, which was pretty young in those days, and the reason was I was starting to mimic and imitate the ladies' midweek players so I could take off all these weird and wonderful serves and backhands. So um, mum and dad decided, you know, right well, the time is probably right to, to get some technique coaching put in there. And... Um, I never really looked back from there. I was absolutely infatuated by hitting a ball. Um, I spent hours upon hours hitting on a brick wall. And I travelled around um, football matches with my dad, who was a rugby league coach in Sydney, of junior team. And I'd go um, and take two rackets and a couple of balls. Um, the extra racket was for someone else to come and play with me on anywhere I could find. And um, that, that was what I was like as a kid. There was, I, was, I was drawn to it. And never left. I played my first tournament at six, mm-hmm. and, and I, I went from there. So it was it was something that I, I really never looked or wanted to do any other sport like them. But nothing had my um, mind more than tennis did. It's really interesting that of so many of the best athletes, there's this period, and it's usually at a fairly young age where there's this obsessiveness, and mm-hmm. it's almost like a a requirement to actually become good. As adults, we look at the thought of, of an adult doing that sort of stuff and think there's something wrong with them. But as a, as a child, you actually have to do that. To yeah, really good. and I had the obsessiveness. It, it, it was something that um, any moment of the day, if I could hit a ball, I would. Hmm. You know, and my dad used to be a policeman and he would do shift work and we had, a, at that time, a, a small fibro house with a little patio entrance and I used to hit on the wall which is his bedroom and I'd bang away on this wall that he was trying to sleep after coming home from doing night shift <laughs> um, and, and so there's all those sorts of stories that were, yeah. that were there and and I think you're right I think from from what I've seen of my travels of people that I've met that have been that hugely successful that's how um, that's how focused they've been and I think that to take it another step further what's even more interesting is that um, in golf, in your world, the, the golfers that I've met that have been like that, they all play the game for the love of it and the enjoyment of it. 
you know, Ken Rosal is an example in tennis. He still hits tennis balls as often as he can. He's, he's getting a bit older and injured now and can't do it. But up until about 70, there was barely a day where he didn't hit a tennis ball. And I've been fortunate enough to play with Arnold Palmer in golf. He's the same, mm. and up even now. And I think that that is the one thing that stands out, is this absolute love of the whole thing, um, even though there are times during your professional career that you can ditch it and you hate it and it's a lot of pressure and stress, but post that it's still got the enjoyment in it. Mm. So as you move through junior ranks, uh, there'll be other players that you encountered who hadn't been, hadn't been playing as long as you had, mm-hmm. so, so that provides a bit of an advantage, but at some point... There's athletes who have done what you've done or athletes who are a little bit older that you're trying to encounter and then you get to open age and, of course, you're, you're playing against season players. Mm. So as you move through the age ranks and into open tennis, what were some of the challenges that you faced that you didn't have to face as a junior? I, I was fortunate in that, I and, I and I've used this philosophy post-playing in my, in my roles, is that I believe you've got to play at your level and above and I don't think you should skip levels. Um, I think that's really important in your development. Um, in my sport, we can play singles, doubles and mixed, and you, going through my record, you can see that I played that all through my career, and I think that's, that's really important to note because um, you, you, you go through learning different skill sets, and they all come from various aspects of the game that you play, and for me, that's the, the three versions, the singles, the, the men's doubles and the mixed doubles, and I played those from the age of nine, in, in local tournaments, going into state events, going into open events to Wimbledon, if you like. And I think that that development phase, for me, that piece of playing where I'm at and above, as far as you could, was really important. And so I, I transitioned on each level fairly quickly in that I got my first professional ranking at 15 um, and I was still playing juniors, um, but I was also playing against some of the pros. Mm. Um, at, at Wimbledon, um, in my 18th year, where I was still in my last year of juniors, I played five events. I played the junior singles and junior doubles, and I actually qualified for the singles, doubles, and mixed in the main draw. Um, so I didn't go and say, I'm too mm. good for juniors now. I can bypass that and just play and focus on opens. I just enjoyed the competition and the winning, and so I wanted to play all of those things while I could. And I think, I think that was a strong mindset of mine in that at times you know, I hated to lose and I had a temper about it, but I wasn't scared of the competitive commitment. Mm-hmm. And so in my development, um, I was encouraged to play and compete a lot. Um, I wouldn't say I ever felt like I played too many tournaments. Um, and I, I still had time to do my development in terms of technique and, and strength and conditioning and all those elements. Um, but I think it was th- that competitive um, part that really continued to drive me, and thus I was successful. I, I got confident and learned how to win when not playing well by playing at my level. Mm-hmm. And then that gave me the confidence to be able to compete against a, a more senior player who was obviously better, but I, I was able to then find ways to beat them. At another level above that, once I got into the pros, I've always, and my record shows that, always been an exceptional doubles player, probably because of my ability to... I like to communicate um, on the court with someone, but I had good vision in doubles, and and I enjoyed that aspect of that. Um, And that part actually helped me become a much better professional singles player because as a young kid I I was never very physically strong, but I had a good, astute tactical mind. Mm. So I had to wait and build confidence till I could be good enough at, at sort of 19, 20 to really crack into the world's best singles players. 
and it still held me that till I had my best result reach, reaching a Wimbledon semi in 97 I was 26 at that stage and that that came about because doubles allowed me to, to build confidence and find a way mm. so with the, I'm just curious about the the doubles singles it's a little bit like golf in that it can it can be lonely. Mm. It's it's everything's up to you. Yeah. When you're playing doubles, is there this sense of um, like socialness or family with your doubles partner that you actually can share the load? I think I, I, I put it down. This is how I've worked it yeah. out in my own mind. Why it worked for me is that in in tennis and singles you are out there on your own, so you are talking to yourself. Mm. It's it's an inner mind game the whole time. So you've got an opponent up the end trying to beat you, and you've got yourself trying to convince yourself that you know how to beat them. And when you're having a bad day or a dog day, um, you start to compete with yourself mentally, so and it can almost be two against one. Two, exactly. And and what what I found in the, the double situation was I had a, a way to verbally get rid of say my negativity or an issue and talk it through in a positive manner with a partner. Yeah. So I could sit down at a change event and say, look, these guys are doing this. We want to try and um, open them up somehow. We need to break here. I'm feeling a bit tight. Simply by allowing myself to admit it openly. It, it, all of a sudden that pressure's gone. You know, you're going out to serve for a match, mate, I'm a little bit nervous here, so I need your help. Mm. That made serving for a match a lot easier than it did by going out in a singles match and having to let it spin around in your own mind. So there was a real psychological um, part to it that, um, that I'm very confident that that's why one was easier for me than the other. Mm. It's interesting you say that. I remember um, at a national uh, amateur championship, uh, which goes into match play. Yeah. <clears throat> One of the players had his father caddying for him, and they were arguing. Yeah. And, um, and I sort of said to him, "I'm not allowed to give advice as a coach, but I'm still allowed to chat with him." And I said, "How are you going?" And he said, "Oh, I've got three opponents today." He said, "The golf course, my opponent, and my dad." <laughs> I think he probably had four because he had himself as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, so. and I suppose in golf, for me, you, you, I've played and love, love the game as well. Um, that's where the caddy is such an important part of um, what, what, what you do out on the golf course is that communication part. It's, it is a partnership and it's something that I had to use, for instance, with a, with a Mark Woodford. Um, in our partnership, the great thing that we had was that we both had an ability to lead. Mm-hmm. I don't know if golf is like that with a caddy, but I've, I, from what I've seen on TV, there's some great caddies who really know when to step in and drive their, their player, and they also know when to pull back, and that's where that, that is a, a, a really significant partnership. Mm-hmm. In the singles world, coaches and, and you know, the rules of tennis and communication between coach and player, I imagine that there's still things like you know, a look or a nod or something because players will look toward the coaching box mm. and so there might be, you know, signals or whatever, whether they're within the rules or not. Yeah. There's, there's uh, acknowledgements of good shots yeah. or like a just a look to lift well, the Well, yeah, a simple that's it can be yes. a confirmation of a tactic that you talked about before you went out on court. That's what you've got to do, you know, yes. now more aggressive, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, they, they play a really pivotal role. I think the one thing that I have noted, though, is that probably from the very best champions, the, the guys that win slams, they don't need that as much. Mm. Maybe like a Djokovic in the current era uses it a bit more. When it comes down to the crunch, they're actually 
so much in their own bubble that they have that ability to find their way and, and get through um, and compete like that. And, and that's, you know, that's something that as an athlete, as a, any professional athlete, um, you've got to try to get to. And, and, I, and I know that if I've hit, you know, all athletes talk about the zones and playing great matches and whatever, the couple of times where I know I've played some of the most, the best tennis that I've ever played, I didn't need that. I was actually really focused and knew exactly what was going on. I, and you, 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 you've got to try to get to that state. But you're never always going to be in that state. So then it's how you deal with it at the, at the other times to make yourself win when you're not playing your best. And, and that's probably one of the, 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 the traits, say, you know, in a Mark Woodford, Todd Woodbridge, Woody's doubles partnership, we won a lot of matches where we didn't play our best mm. and we probably should have lost, but we found ways to get out of it on the day. You know, you put that down to getting a score in golf when you've hardly hit a decent shot. It's a similar thing. That's where the good teams, the good individual players of sport find their way. Mm. Interesting what you're talking about, uh, you know, the best players not needing that extra thing. If that's one of the traits that, that make champions champions, what is it about them that allows them to play without requiring... Well, they're, they're, I, I believe a lot of them learn it, and I know I learned to do it a lot better. There's only a very few uh, phenoms in sport. You, in golf, it'd be a Tiger Woods. Mm. Um, in tennis, it's a... It's been like a Michael Chang and the Leighton Hewitt and a Rafael Nadal over the last 25 years that walk in as young kids and can just go off and do it. They've got this innate ability. Mm. Everybody else has to go through the experiences and learn it. Um, and and I, was, I was one of those. Um, I often got caught up in the euphoria of going to Wimbledon for the first time and the atmosphere and looking around the energy that gets used before you actually get onto court. Um, but that's part of that journey of why it motivates you. You like to get there because of it. And then once you've been there once and twice, and you start to really you know, flourish with it. By you know, halfway through my Wimbledon career, I'd walk through that place feeling like I owned it. Um, an interesting thing is that you know, Mark Woodford and I won five in a row there. Not once at that particular tournament did we go back thinking we had to defend anything. Mm. We always went back to win it again. So at one tournament in one place, I had probably a completely different attitude than I did at some of the other events where I always felt a little nervous and under pressure, didn't quite like the atmosphere or was on clay at the French Open. I was always uptight because I wanted to do well so that go to Wimbledon, it was the opposite effect. But that was a learned experience. And um, at the older I got in my career, the better I got at that as well. So I've got players that I've coached um, over the last few years and mentored that only takes one time and they feel comfortable. But uh, I'll use an example of uh, Marinko Matosovic, who I've had a lot to do with over the last four years. Now in the world's top 50, he's still yet to win a match at Grand Slam level. But every time he has this experience, he's getting closer. He's one, one tennis player that I think has had to take three or four times of the same experience to actually feel confident to be able to accept he can do it. Mm. And so if we'd have said to him, oh, mate, you're no good after the first or second time, he wouldn't be in the top 50. And so that's been a learning curve for me, understanding that people can get there. Um, it's the information and the support network that helps them to do that. I love what you said about going to Wimbledon and feeling like you own the place. I've actually used that with golfers as well. Mm -hmm. Because if 
say when uh, when we're afraid of something, we generally represent ourselves as being small. Mm. When we feel like we're in control, we have ownership, we represent ourselves as being much bigger. Mm. That can be really useful. So as a, as a strategy, going into a place, feeling like you're owning it is absolutely brilliant. I was, it's good to hear you say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the ownership came from the success, um, but it also came from um, respect mm-hmm. um, of of the event, the the, the the tournament, the history of it, um, from the sport, from the people gone before, um, and I probably understand that a little bit more now. And on one occasion, um, the year I had made the semis of the singles in '97, I beat Michael Chang first round, who was I think around about fourth seed. And he, um, that match was on centre court, and I led 5-1 in the fifth, two breaks, ended up being down 6-5, love 30 on serve. So I really gagged, mm. I was giving the match away. Normally, my emotions would have got the better of me, um, but because I was on centre, I felt, I, I, I didn't realise this so much, but my behaviour was better, I kept my head, I, I stood up to the moment, I won the match, 8-6 in the end, uh, in the fifth, I've walked off the court and I'm, I'm Mark Woodford made a comment to me later. He said, the only reason that you did that was because you had too much respect for the centre court to lose your head, so you should remember that. And I think he made a great point, mm. is that I, I actually learned from the place. I wasn't going to let myself down. I wasn't going to misbehave or lose my temper or carry on like a fruit loop. And consequently, I actually got one of my best results. And... Um, that's sort of the thing that Wimbledon did to me. And so that was a lesson that I was able to take into every other match that I played after that tournament. Mm. So, so that sort of goes to emotional control. Mm-hmm. So with the best players, including you in this, that level of emotional control, how do you go about trying to harness that? So you did it in that, in that match mm. against Michael Chang with a combination of you know, respect for respect for the place and respect for the occasion and the tournament. Well, look, I, I, like all professional athletes, have used all the varying aspects of sports science, so whether it be sports psychologists and the physical aspects and the the actual natural tennis coach. And um, one of the things that that I used for myself was that I I was the one responsible. And by being responsible, I had to take ownership of everything that I did. So in terms of using a sports psychologist for me, that was really important. But I got to a point where I felt I didn't need that anymore. Mm. I had been given the tools. Now it's up to me to use the tools. And until I'm ready to do it, I'm not going to get the result that I want. And so that was my mindset. You do need to go back and have a refresher course and do all that sort of thing. But you can't, as an athlete, um, be so attached to something that you can't compete without it. And I think for me that was a, is a really important thing and something that I've seen from a lot of the, the very best that I've been around in sport is that they have the team of people. The, the other trait that works with that team of people is that I have always had the attitude that if I can get information from anybody and use it to my advantage, I'm going to use it. Mm. If it doesn't suit me or my style, then I let it go. But I don't get hung up about it. I don't get negative about, Peter told me about this, and I don't like it. Mm. And so because I don't like it, (laughs) you know, you get negative, you you blame Peter for Mm. giving it to me. I've never had that problem, and I I always try now to give that info and advice to young players, said, 
if I've told you something that doesn't work, just discard it and look for the next bit of information. But I might give you one gem that really helps you. And I think that was a, is what I call like a, a real positive, um, you know, you put the blinkers on and you look forward mm. at how to improve yourself. So the psychology and, and all of those things for me was really important, but it was understanding not to get so attached to it that I couldn't keep improving. By getting attached to it and by, you know, taking the attitude of, you know, Peter told me this, it doesn't work, he's given me bad information. That's absolving that sense of uh, control, self-control, and focus and responsibility as well. Y- yes, I mean, that that's the one thing that's really important is that you can't blame anybody else. Mm. If you're going to be as good as you possibly can, it's got to come, you're, you're the one that hit the shot, you're the one that chose the shot. Uh, whether that be in tennis and or in golf, um, and you got to take the consequences of that. If you if you blow it because you lose your temper, or you blow it because you haven't done the work and you're not prepared, you have to accept that. And I think once you take that on, you automatically just raise your level. Mm. Um, and you, you actually have to do that every day, though. You do it mid match. You do it mid training. Um, you do it at the end of the day when you revise, you know, in your own head how it all went. But if you have that attitude, I think you've got that ability to soar. Mm. And and that's, you know, for me, I think uh, I know from many matches that I end up, I lost and where I felt like I actually should have won and for whatever reason I didn't. I used to punish myself by actually going back out on court. And particularly if I had let myself down mentally, that was my way of going out and challenging myself again. It wasn't going back and sulking. It was going back out and saying, well, this is what you need to do to get yourself better. Mm. And, um, you know, that's probably... There's a lot of people that look at that and say it's an old-fashioned thing, but, but I looked at even some of the Australian women's over in golf just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was there. As soon as they left the course, they were out hitting balls or yeah. working on their game. And you can tell a lot by an athlete by what they do following um, about how much it really hurt and then you'll go out and you'll see what they do to make it better. Mm. I think the old-fashioned part of that is if uh, if it's a coach or the parent saying, you should have won that, get out there and do some more work. But I think if it's coming from yeah. if it's coming from you, yeah. it's like, you know, I can do better and I'm going to do better. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I think I, I give credit to my parents in a sense of that. My my dad, um, my mum and dad were very, very um, supportive, you know, and they often said, if you don't want to play, don't play, you know. But they were probably, they knew they knew where I was going. Um, but dad, from a young age, made me fill out my own entry forms. And I'd have to, I'd have to write it, enter it, he'd post it. And so I, he was giving me ownership yeah. even then which at that time you don't really know. And I've got a daughter who, who's into her golf and I do the same with her. Yeah. It's got to come. If you want to play, then you go and enter it. I'll tell you when it's on, help you get it organised, but it's got to come back to you. And that's a very simple thing from a really young age to help an athlete um, actually make it theirs. Yeah. It's actually a challenge sometimes with uh, institute programs. And I know because I've been involved in a couple of them that the athletes will go through the program and you're looking to make the pathway for them as smooth as possible. Now, in doing that, you often take those responsibilities, not, not deliberately away from the player, but just as in, a, you know, I just want to look after you. Yeah. And so they, they get to the end of the, the, the period of scholarship yeah. and want to play professionally or whatever, 
and they haven't done those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I've obviously been involved in both ways as a, an Australian Institute of Sport athlete mm-hmm. and scholarship holder, and then having sat at the other end and being head of professional tennis and helped run it. I suppose my my feeling on that is that it's a constant education. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a parent now as well. I think we do the right thing by trying to make it as easy, but I think we also have to bring them in for that journey to educate because if you if you don't show them how to do it and just monitor, we, we, we as an example, would make all of our kids do their own entries and occasionally they will miss. Mm. And it's, it is a simple error, not they didn't mean to, it was an accident, the time slipped away, that happens as a teenager. So you have to be watching them to make sure that it, that it does. And... and I think early on in our leadership roles in those spaces, we were a little too harsh on those kids and we needed to keep educating them along the way because there are very few young athletes out there, like I call them those phenoms, that get it, that know. Most of them have to come along and be taught and told again and shown maybe for a third time. And if you probably have to go four or five, that's a bit of a worry. But you still need to have the refresher course for, for them because it's, um, it's, a, it's, a constant, it's, a, it's a constant learning curve for them. And we're talking about kids that are travelling internationally and need to learn a lot of stuff to survive. And I loved that part of it. I was probably the leader in my group yeah. that I travelled with. I used to take control of the group. I'd be the one sent up to check-in because I would sweet-talk for luggage at you know, 16, 17 <laughs> yeah. years of age. But, but that was a bit of a... Yeah. You know, the talent and the rest of the group used to do, we'd, we'd work that way. But education is really important through, through that, all sorts of education. You know, probably the most important is life education because um, I, I now realise that my coach was, was Ray Ruffles and he's uh, the father of young Ryan Ruffles who's doing so well at the moment in golf. And But, but Ray I spend more time with than I did my own dad. Mm. So he... From the age of 14, I was travelling the world with him and he had to teach me how to grow up and, and, how, to, and how to look after uh, everything. And so the, 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 the golf coach, the tennis coach, the sporting coach um, has many roles to play within that because often they're as influential as the parents are. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, because there's that respect in there as mm-hmm. well. So it sort of gets to the stage where, particularly with younger athletes, that whatever the coach is, must be right. Yeah. And then that's generalised in the not only what he tells me about my you know, my golf or my tennis, but what he tells me about everything else must yeah. be right too. And we see the same things in interviews with yeah. athletes. They win a they win a trophy and all of a sudden they're asked questions about politics and yes. sports. And yes. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And I think it's probably you know, really important to have those conversations though with young athletes and mm-hmm. in, in, in tennis, you know, we are uh, Leighton Hill was the number one player in the world, 20, 21 years of age, and um, he's expected to be acting like he's 30, 31, and the, you know, the media is, is unrealistic in putting that much pressure on a young athlete. I had the same things to go through. Um, you, you have that little period where you flourish in terms of you get this great review in the papers, and then you have a bad result, and then you start to get criticised. And as a young athlete, um, I don't think we focus enough on how to help them to handle those moments 
um, because all you're going out there to do is, you know, your positive mm. life is great and you want to win and you're out there trying to do it. And when someone starts to criticise you, you do not know how to handle it. So that's an important role that, you know, the coach, the family has to play in almost. And we do this a lot now in tennis with our young players, is that we talk about those things before they came. We have, you know, with the, the, the summer just gone, young Nick Kyrgios and mm. the Nasi Kokonakis had huge media. But we'd already had discussions around about, you know, how to deal with that. For them, it's about what goes on in social media, how to draw back and still remain positive within those aspects. Mm. And, um, they're modern things that I, I didn't have to go through in terms of you know, as much exposure as a young athlete gets now. So in your role as a mentor and a leader, in situations like that, do you actually role-play what happens if you get poor press, what happens if you get good press? Yeah, look, sort of uh, you know, it's really important. Uh, you, you sit down, I sit down with some of the athletes that are willing to mm. and talk about um, what's your brand going to be. What do, you, what do you want to be as a tennis player? What's your style of tennis player? Um, you know, do you like a certain company that you want to be associated with? How are you going to behave and how are you going to talk when you talk to the media about that? Because that's important to what your brand becomes. It's, it actually explains to them that um, although this is a great... Um, you kind of isolated sport or, or a moment. It's actually a long-term business and it, mm. it will become your life. And where do you want to go after that? And so then it becomes about teaching them how to be with people, how to, how to respect all parts of the business that goes around your sport. Because as a young player, you don't care about anything else mm. other than winning. So you don't know where the water and the banana comes from that gets brought to the court. You don't know really care about the drivers as long as they get you to mm. the court sometime. Um, but once you learn to have a broader aspect of it, you actually become a much better athlete and player. You know, once a young player in tennis that gets to about 19 or say 18, 19, I, I'd try to have those conversations with them mm. if they're willing. Um, the hardest part that I find now is that, of course, they have agents, and I had an agent, but if, if they start to... Um, um, tuck them away where you can't help mentor, that becomes a real difficulty. And so um, there, are, there, are, there are times when I, I don't think a sports agent actually delivers what they need to for an athlete. They actually don't look after them as well as they should. Mm. They promise too much and don't deliver on that and then the kids don't understand why. Yeah. If we've looked at things like this sense of ownership or responsibility, this sense of you know finding ways to win, looking at who you are as a brand and what you want what you want to represent. It's interesting with the brand thing, brand is you the way you're perceived is not up to you. Well it's it it is up well, to well, you in terms be, of it, what you it, present it, it but can it's, be up to you if you it's what you, other people perceive. True. You but you also um, it, when you're a young athlete and exposed to a lot of media, it's about giving the media something. Mm. If you don't give them anything to write or talk about you 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 are then at their whim about what they want to brand you as. But if you if you are articulate enough to, to give answers, to give them a story to write about, then you'll do really well. But you have to teach that to, mm. to a young person. You have to go through that. That's just another part of that journey. Because if you don't teach that properly, it, that can actually put them under extraordinary uh, pressure and stress. And it can be um, detrimental to their career path. Because if they start to believe too early everything that they read, then they lose focus. Mm. A- and if they do really well and continue, but then there's this expectation that I've got to do that every week, well, that's unrealistic and the coach has to work through mm. that. So, you know, that's a, a part of um, an elite young sports person's life 
that potentially at times we don't actually give them an, enough information to because um, it, it can really, you, you take that onto the court and or you take it onto a golf course and that can affect your round or your match. You know, any time a young kid comes into the Australian Open tennis, they're under enormous watch. Mm. And if they fail, um, that can really hurt them. But if they can learn to go into the Australian Open, and this is something that I had as an example, about halfway through my career, I used to love playing in Australia. But early on, oh, geez, was I uptight about it. Mm. But then you learn to actually use it to your advantage. The crowd, everything else becomes yeah. real positive. But you've got to, like, that again is the experience part of it. Yeah. And I guess over probably the last uh, well, 15 years at least, the response, and the, probably the changing response to, um, to Hewitt and how he was perceived earlier. Even <coughs> Agassi was the same. Uh, where there's this negative perception because they're an upstart, just maybe because it's just because they're young. Um, yeah, they're, they're different characters who went yeah. through completely different phases of, of their life. I think in particular for, for Leighton, the last 18 months, he's come to a point in his career where he recognised he was not well liked in Australia and he had to find a way to change that before his career finished because um, you still need to do something post-playing. And I think the one thing that um, has helped him enormously has been commentary. Mm. He's done some commentary where the public have actually been able to listen to him articulate his sport. He does it very well. They enjoyed his insight because he's of his, of his strong mind and, and character on court. And I think they misunderstood his character on court and this has allowed them to see you know, the competitive spirit that he had, but also what, why it was like that, because he's trying to find a way to beat this guy, mm. and it wasn't necessarily behaviour on court that got him into trouble, it was comments off. He's, he's now, you know, father of three, he's completely more open and understanding to doing more now than he did when he was, mm. you know, he's 32 now, when he was 22, he, he's now able to cope with that. He couldn't at that young age when there was so much more on him. I, I think he's a, an example of a, a great credit of continual learning um, and, and now is in a much better position as a brand than, um, than he was. I, I think for a long time he probably looked at Pat Rath and said, this is ridiculous, how can this guy still be not playing and have so much more than I do? What am I doing wrong? To his credit, I think he sat back and had a look and has really assessed and gone on a really you know, positive path with it. Mm. A young player comes along, so we'll go back to the, mm-hmm. like the coaching mentoring mm. role. A young athlete comes along and someone says, Todd, you, you've got to have a look at this, this boy, this girl, they've got this amazing talent. When you look at that player, what are you looking for? I think the first, the first thing that stands out for me is how they play matches and how they play competitively and under pressure. And can they win? Because there's a lot of great ball strikers. They look great, they hit well, they have a massive serve, but they can't win matches. And you go, why is that? Um, And then there'll be somebody that technically isn't quite as sound yet, but they find a way to win. And I I think when I look at young players, it's, it's, you know, can they find a way to win? Mm. And, And that's that young thing. And then the second part of that, which is really important then, is technique. Because if you can win at a young age, often that's got to do with a good, strong mind. But as kids grow and they get physically stronger and they all start to be in the same pool, 
then it comes down to what technique you've got to go with that mine. And if you don't have the technique, you just get exposed. As an example of that, American tennis has struggled in the last 15 years because their coaching base over there has always coached for the win um, in juniors and not for that longer-term crossing over. So an American player will come in, they've got a great forehand, but a dodgy grip over on the backhand, and as a pro, that can be broken down really quickly, and they can't find ways to improve it. It's just it's, they've gone too long, and the technique, technical change is too hard to make. So a smart opponent will pick it up. Immediate, it. Immediately. Mm. You know, and so I think they're the two, the, the two key things that stand out in my sport, is that, you know, that ability to win and strength of mind followed by the technique to be able to take it to the very top. Can you train strength of mind? Um, yeah, of course you can. I think I'm an example of doing that. You know, if anybody talks about my career path, I think they say that I was a great... I've had people say I was a great competitor. I thought I was a terrible competitor, mm. but that was because I was really harsh on myself. But the strength of mind comes from um, turning up the next day, from playing and losing and turning up the next day and saying, I'm not accepting that, I'm going to go mm. do it again. Yes, you can train that. I, I, I believe you can. Some people just can't do it, mm. but, but a lot can. Yeah. I don't think you should ever give up on that, put it that way. Your role currently where you're leading younger players mm-hmm. and, and experienced players and mentoring them, what do you see as the most important aspects of that? You know, one of the things that I've learned post-playing is that in my sport, and I think this probably goes for anything because I'm in a head-to-head sport, an individual sport, um, is that, like, and we work in a development pathway, is that you must have a pathway and a framework, but you must have the ability to be fluid within that. It can't be so single-minded because um, in, in Australia now we're, we're dealing with a different demographic of young people coming into the sport. Um, a lot of Eastern Europeans, and, and they are brought up very differently with, with different ideals and, and cultures. And so if I was to treat every athlete that I've come and worked with, so I've been head of men's and women's tennis, if I was to treat, quite simply, the women as I treat the men, I wouldn't get a result. Mm. And so I've learned that what I did doesn't necessarily fit over there, and each coach needs to be looked at and find who gels with each other. Um, And so one of the key things that I did when I came in was to try to start to hire a base of coaches that I call eclectic, Mm -hmm. that I could put an athlete with that would get the best out of that athlete. Because not every coach is the right coach for every individual athlete. And I suppose that that key thing is understanding how to, to, to coach is that you have your style and your way, but you also have to understand that the athlete that comes to you comes to you with a completely different set of things for you to have to improve and have to work. Prime example of that is when I started in the men's role, our Davis Cup team was looking really bleak. We had a real block in our in our player set. And two young players were Marinko Matosovic and a Matt Ebden, both in the world's top 100, one in 50, they're about... 48 and 62 this week. One's from a South African background and one's from um, a Croatian background. And so completely being brought up in two different households. I had to completely manage those two differently. And had I managed them the same, neither of them would have got there. Mm. And so I think for me that was a real learning curve and something that even now I talk to the coaches that I work with and, and the leadership in our team about 
don't don't be so single-minded. Understand what you've got to try to deliver in the playing group. If you can do that within the pathway, though, you can't go ridiculously outside of it because there are constraints that an athlete needs. Then you will get a result. That's a great message for all coaches. If coaches take that message on board about treating you each person as an individual, regardless mm. of their sport as well, uh, then I'm sure they'll go a long way. Mm. Todd, thanks for your time. Pleasure. Enjoyed the chat. Thank you very much.